Welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused meaningful changes to the way we live and work, accelerating digitization, reshaping communities, disrupting human behavior, and making each of us reconsider many of the assumptions we made about our lives and those of others. But as we begin the process of recovery, what happens next? In today's podcast, we'll look ahead to 2025 and explore future scenarios for business, consumers and society. We're going to take a look at how far the global economy has come on the road to renewal, assess what changes brought on by the pandemic could still be prevalent and share what signals for coming change we're already seeing today. Guiding us through this is Ben Page. Ben's the chief executive of Ipsos Mori, a leading UK research company with six divisions covering government, marketing, innovation, social and political research, advertising and media. He's an expert on brand perception, leadership and people management, and has directed thousands of surveys examining consumer trends and citizen behaviour. Before we start the conversation, one request. If you're enjoying this series, I do encourage you to go on whatever platform you get your podcasts on and give us a five-star review as it really does help us to grow the wide community. Many thanks. It's much appreciated. On to the podcast. Ben, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Over to you. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to just quickly take you through, I think, some of the key dimensions that we need to consider when we think about the next four years. Uh, let's have a look at this now. Okay. So life in 2025, just how different will it be? What you can see already is that COVID-19 has had massive impacts on our behavior. The question is how much that will actually ch lead to changes in our values. Um, if if a, a pill was available in a chemist on Monday that fixed everything all over the world, uh, you know exactly how different would be would things be from say 2019? And you can see plenty of hot takes uh, all over the world if you go online about how work will change forever, the world has changed forever, it changed everything. We need a revolution for a born again world. Our exercise is different. Our perception of time has changed. The pandemic will change everything. It's changed youth activism. It's changed staff development. You name it. The pandemic has changed it. But I think we're just a little bit cautious about that when we look at the future. I think the first thing is that we can see plenty of signals of change that are already happening. And I think a key thing for us all is that where a trend was already happening, like the digital acceleration of the last year, um, that's very likely to stick. But other things I think are less clear. So we can see potential for a green reset, we have the COP26 conference in Glasgow this year, where we're going to be talking about, um, you know, new measures to try and reduce carbon emissions. As the as the New York Times put it, social distancing. You might be fighting climate change too. We can see, you know, reconfigurations of travel patterns because of the digital acceleration. The fact that we're doing this in this format. The other, but I think some things are less clear. We were already very worried about the future in Western societies. Um, that was behind events like the election of Donald Trump, the Brexit vote in Britain, the Gilets Jaunes in France. And it took a few years after the previous crash in 2008 for the political ramifications to become clear. But certainly that's there. 
a retreat to the home and nostalgia for the past is certainly is already happening, but that and we'll see. And then, of course, big brands tend to do better in, in, in big situations like this, in crises like this, because they have the financial firepower and also the sort of mental connections in consumers' minds to come through this better than smaller companies. We can see a return to community and purpose. We saw during lockdown, Black Lives Matter and the, the murder of Sarah Everard has similarly triggered a sort of reflection about gender violence in, in Britain and in many societies. There's been a, a massive rise in an interest in a, in a global pandemic in health and fitness. And then, of course, a key thing is big government. Government spending money at the moment in a way that they could normally only they would normally only do in wartime. And yet they're able to spend money on stimulus, which we all need in our economies, at levels of interest rate costs currently that are lower than um, they were paying in 2019, if you take the case of Britain, for example. So those are all signs that we can see of potentially quite major changes coming in the next, in the next decade. But I think at the same time, we need to be careful because when we look back to the last century, uh, before the iPhone was invented, before the war on terror, before Facebook, before Spotify, before the global financial crash of 2008, and you just look at what, what has happened just in one country, let's take this in Britain, where I'm based, you can see the internet goes from 13 to 93% just before the pandemic. And yet, in terms of thinking that technology is destroying our lives or wanting to slow down our lives, you know, or even being a chief executive will make you happy. Nothing really changed at all in those 20 years. So, and, you know, or it's up to everybody to work out their own principles and not listen to higher authority. So I looked last year to see how much the pandemic had started to shift these things. Maybe, you know, maybe spending all day looking at a screen was shifting us in terms of our attitudes to technology. And actually, Although a few more people went online, virtually everybody, because they needed to for their shopping, everything else just doesn't, things don't necessarily change that quickly. So our deep-rooted values, should we have kids? Um, you know, how do we feel about gay marriage? What do we think about the death penalty? These sorts of things, they don't change in a, even with a very dramatic, amazing year, weird year, like the one we've just lived through. So in terms of the, in terms of 2025, I think, you know, there, is, there are clearly areas of uncertainty. I mean, what we can see is for us, when we look at the future, a big question is exactly what sort of economic recovery do we have? Is it V-shaped? Is it K-shaped? Is it global? Or is it concentrated in a few countries and um, becomes the world economy becomes even more patchy? That's one axis, I think. The other is whether we have, you know, the traditional, the, the players who are most powerful at the moment, retain that power and come out of it, if anything, stronger, or whether you start to see some real upheaval, both socially, in terms of demographics and politically. And depending on which of those you look at, then you get four different scenarios. So one is a potential for a transformed world, um, where perhaps we have more multilateral institutions really getting to grips with things like climate change, recognizing that the only way ultimately to deal with the pandemic was through coordinated action on vaccines, which we're certainly not seeing at the moment. And that perhaps, and the, and the, the focus on inequality that we saw in the pandemic leads to perhaps, um, you know, changes in our politics in the same way that we saw populism arise after 2008. Perhaps you see some differences here. More negatively, a fractured world, perhaps where climate change keeps going, um, the, uh, where the global recovery is extremely patchy and you start to have um, many more borders, 
a very sort of local focus and real the the sharpened inequality starting to play out mass migration pressures there um and uh, it looks it looks pretty patchy and uneven a more, a more another scenario is just a sort of retreat to the local shorter supply chains uh again it's there are winners and losers but uh, people focus on their local communities more more local resilience they may be poorer but there's also sort of regional innovation and then probably the most likely scenario for us at the moment is one that's more familiar actually it is it's like the pre-COVID world, but with more stresses. We do get, we do overall deal with the pandemic, although it remains in the background. It's never eliminated. And um, the existing, you know, but, but our economies do bounce back in 2022, 2023. And it's not that dissimilar um, from where we are today. We have all the problems that we had before the pandemic, and they're still there, but it's not a it's not a completely fractured world. And finally, before we discuss this, then Greg, I think these are sort of air, the areas where we, you know, you're looking for um, signs of change. That this is what we will be looking at as we go towards 2025. This ex- the extent to which societies want real change, or they're nostalgic for the past. The extent to which big tech just continues, or whether actually we do start to see more regulated tech. Uh, we see perhaps the, the Chinese internet becoming completely separate whether you see weakened global institutions because people retreat into national into behind national barriers and national things like vaccine nationalism or whether actually you see strengthened global institutions whether you see on climate change actually a coherent set of actions or actually we we continue to try and avoid biting the bullet on climate change until we until it's too late with this sort of nostalgia for the past so these would be and on, on the economy do you have a low touch economy or do you you know where we re- retain these m- people wearing masks traveling less etc or do we return to the high touch economy of 2019. So on all of those, perhaps if I had to choose now about 2025, those would be those dots are my bets. But um, I think the whole point is that the future is uncertain. Nobody can predict it. Nobody really, none of the elites predicted 2008. Nobody seriously predicted uh, what happened in 2020. Uh, I can predict the results of elections with 0.3% accuracy as we did in December 2019 in the British election, but I do need to get to the Tuesday before the Thursday in order to do that. And 2025 is a long way away. But nevertheless, probably not as different as we might think, but beware the wildcards. Thank you. And thank you. Um, Lots to uh, sink our teeth into there. Um, Let's look at the recovery, first of all. There was so much talk, you know, around a year ago, uh, there was talk about a V-shaped recovery, then it became a bathtub shape. Uh, Now the consensus suggests it looks something like a a letter K with very clear winners, very clear losers. Um, Andy Haldane at the Bank of England talked about the economy as a coiled spring recently. His boss, Andrew Bailey, yesterday was a little bit more circumspect. What does your research tell us? Well, I think it certainly shows that there are winners and losers. And so you've got a large number of people who've saved money in the pandemic, knowledge workers, people working in admin who've been able to stay at home. And generally, if they've stayed in work, they've saved money. You've also got a whole load of people who, if you're working in hospitality, catering, retail, you've clearly suffered. 
and you can and so you end up with an uneven recovery there is there is some sort of animal spirits probably in 2022 but i think also a lot of people because of this fear of the future that was present before the pandemic we had in britain uh, and across west the western world around half the population expecting their children to be poorer than them before the pandemic, back at the start of the century, that was less than one in 10 people. So that's been the biggest shift in the last 20 years. And because of that, a lot of a lot of the savings go into paying down debt rather than a roaring 20s, in my view. So there will be some, you will see some of it, but actually a lot of a lot of people actually paying down debt and very anxious about the future. So that K-shaped recovery, both inside countries and between countries, which of course makes you know more tension going forward. So uh, we've touched a lot on the the UK facing significant changes um, elsewhere, uh, both economically and socially, as it begins this recovery. Um, Are those challenges broadly the same across the globe, or are you seeing big differences between nation states? No, and I think, again, the pandemic um, highlighted a difference that was already there in terms of the confidence of populations about the future. When we write reports about this optimism humanity's optimism for the world. We actually have to print the pages upside down. And I say, if you're in London, Paris, Rome, Chicago, read it this way. If you're in New Delhi, you know, New Delhi or Shanghai, read it the other way up or Jakarta, because the optimism of Asia, and again, they've gone through the pandemic mostly uh, in a, you know, I think the last time I checked, seven people died in Taiwan. They've handled it in a completely different way to more individualistic Western societies. And so they were already, before the pandemic, more optimistic. They will remain more optimistic. And finally, if you want to look for real upheavals, look at Latin America, because that's where populism is really strong. We talk about Britain, we talk about Europe, we talk about America, we talk about Hungary and populism. But actually, if you look at people's attitudes and if, if populism is a revolt against the elites, there's a lot of tension coming down the track in, in Latin America because that is where the future really has disappeared for a lot of the new middle classes. But that's that's an interesting point you've made there. And clearly, you know, Brazil has been a disaster, you know, strong, you know, the populist leader. Um, but we are coming out of the pandemic because of the incredible work done in the vaccine, uh, done in vaccine discovery, amazing work done by scientists uh, and researchers and in medical industries. Has that not reset people's attitudes towards science, towards expertise? Well, to be honest, um, this thing about experts was always overblown. Scientists before the pandemic and after the pandemic were the most trusted professions on the planet. Uh, we've done surveys in, in 20 major economies that show that. And actually, overall trust in science has been rising. So again, we need to be careful about, because of very noisy voices on social media from a minority about, about that. So no, science has saved us in the pandemic. And you can see a future where actually, you know, it, it, conti- you know, it continues. Um, the, we, we have the 20s of automation, uh, obviously AI, the processing power and, and memory capacity that we have now is just, just amazing as wired, wired readers know much better than me. And um, I, you can see that actually people's trust in science is, is sustained after this. And so maybe it does, it does get us out of it. It's, it's interesting that people are able to de- decouple sort of like science and universities f- from, from elites. But let's park that for a moment. Yeah. Um, clearly, um, you know, we've talked about um, the enormous amount of stimulus that's been put into uh, uh, economies throughout the world. Um, what kind of attitudes do you see now towards uh, uh, people 
being willing maybe to pay extra taxes in order to ensure uh, robust healthcare, to, to mitigate climate change, to deal with social inequality. Uh, do you see that there is a, a change that people are thinking long term and the fact that uh, everyone's going to need to contribute to tackle these very uh, you know, challenging uh, areas? At the high level, the pandemic has actually seen global concern about climate change go on rising, which is, uh, you know, if you believe in climate change as a problem, which I do, then, you know, that's heartening. I think the challenge comes when you talk about when you get into the rubber hitting the road and say, you know, do, do you want your government to charge you more in order to protect the environment? Then Western populations get very much um, split, to be quite honest. So, Britain has moved in many European countries. America has moved in, in, in the direction of more support for government intervention, wanting governments to step in a stronger state to protect people. Uh, that has certainly happened, and you can see that being sustained. But consumers don't always, you know, what people say they want to do about paying more taxes, you have to be a little bit wary about as, a, as an opinion pollster, because people, um, they, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily always vote for it. And in the same way on climate change, people are more concerned. What they are expecting is government to do the heavy listening, government and business. People won't necessarily pay more for more environmentally friendly products, but they expect businesses to just deliver reformulation, lower carbon solutions effectively. So there's a willingness for government to act, I think, certainly, and governments, you know, particularly where they can borrow the money, certainly are. But we haven't seen a political sea change yet at all. I mean, and I think one thing to remember is if we're looking at the aftermath of the pandemic, and that's why we have those four different scenarios. Um, it takes time for the political ramifications of something like COVID-19 to really become clear. It took four years for populism to really take off after 2008. And I think we won't know until it may be 2025 before we can start to discern the, you know, what we now, what historians would say were the shifts driven by the pandemic. Well, that, that's interesting. And maybe that sort of, right, you know, that, that reflects a lot on the way that the government has talked about its levelling up agenda. Um, is there a sense that the recovery uh, that we will see this happen or do the challenges of the pandemic mean that, that, that public finances are going to be allocated elsewhere? Well, the government uh, in Britain has spent money on obviously trying to reduce regional uh, inequality, uh, et cetera. But the amount that they need to spend and the, the scale of the problem is probably, you know, we're still only starting to touch the sides, quite frankly. There is there is infrastructure spending. The public is enthusiastic. But we have long-standing problems of over-centralisation in, in Britain of everything in London and the southeast. The pandemic, of course, means that we can see different, you can see a different future with people perhaps living further away from some of the regional centres, uh, but I, but but will the government spend the money that's needed? Um, uh, we'll, we'll see. It's a big, it's a big ask that they've got to try and fundamentally change the economy of the north of England in four short years. And frankly, I think that's that's pretty pretty tough. And clearly, the, the, the pandemic has hit. You know, it, it, it's affected people uh, very unequally, uh, and the most vulnerable have been in, impacted. Have you seen any increase um, in in support uh, for ideas like UBI? Um, not really. I mean, there's a bit of a shift towards uh, wanting to be a bit more like a Scandinavian country than America. Um, so that 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 was already present before the pandemic, and it's carried on. So wanting a society where people are supported, where we try and you know we try and achieve social justice. There's a big age difference on this too, between whether the recovery should be about economic recovery or about social progress. And you see that in 
um, most Western societies, the young who obviously don't have the assets, uh, wanting you know wanting to get their hands on some and to see reduced inequality, and older people just concerned about getting the economy going at, at you know at whatever cost almost. So those I think are some of the challenges. And in our scenarios for, in shaping 2025, I think that that question of that generational gap in values that we can see on attitudes to the royal family, that we can see in our politics in many societies. The question is how those are resolved. Do we do the young keep the values that they have now as they get older, in which case you will see fundamental shifts in our societies in the next 10, 20 years? Or actually, is it is it, quote unquote, a period effect and people will become more conservative as they get older? We don't know yet. Well, uh, I'd, I'd love you to look into your crystal ball now and, and, and look ahead to 2025. Um, if people watching our, our scenario planning for the next few years, um, can you maybe outline the certainties that you're seeing for, for 2025? Well, the certainties are demography. So whatever, however many over 60s the disease has killed, um, Europe will be the old, you know, will be heading on towards being the oldest continent on earth, Italy, the oldest country on earth. And that has huge implications in terms of people, older people paying less tax, needing uh, a, a decreasing working age population unless we import people. So those that is a certainty. You know, technical progress of some kind, the march of AI um, and e-commerce, again, those seem almost certain. We lost uh, 180,000 jobs in retailing last year. Today, I woke up to seeing uh, you know, a chocolate store has just shut, shut 60 stores. I think 200,000 jobs going there this year and we lost during the pandemic we've lost 120 million jobs in tourism globally and again how quickly those come back particularly if people are worried about traveling the disease hasn't gone away there are countries that haven't got vaccination programs sorted out even by the end of next year so you can see you can see all of that and climate change again the science is pretty certain that if we all disappeared off the planet today the world would go on getting hotter i think for at least another 30 years even without us here um, before it started to cool down again so that's that's pretty certain so more wildfires flooding these are and uh, you know those are the those are the certainties i think absolute certainties that one needs to plan around so that yeah so thinking about uncertainties you know some of the hot takes that you showed earlier on in your presentation were around the future of work and clearly people are watching and thinking about a return to the office in the next six to nine months um, what do you think 2025 is going to look like is the era of the kind of like the central the office in the center of a city is, is that coming to an end do you think i don't think i mean cities survive war pestilence famine and everything and they survive because people people human beings are social animals and talking on screens still doesn't really suit most of us. But there's a clear desire. We've got a report coming out on the 24th of, uh, of March detailing some of this, that it looks as though, you know, the average worker in an office would might be going to work for two to three days a week in an office. And that will have a big, that will still have a big impact on central business zones. It means people can live further away in cheaper accommodation and come in one or two days a week. Uh, I think it means that offices, we still need offices for inspiration, for training, for collaboration, uh, but um, you know they, they, they may well be reconfigured. So that's the most likely bet at the moment. But again, I'd be, be very wary about predicting the death of the office in any sensible shape or form. But I think where, we, where things have changed and the taboo against remote working has certainly been busted, and that was a taboo that was there before. It's a bit like the mental health taboo. That's been busted in many Western societies over the last decade. And so I think you are going to see more distributed working and, and you know, not and let fewer people doing nine to five in central activity zones, but certainly not the death of 
the death of the city. That's way overblown. Just a reminder that you can uh, ask questions in the Q&A. Please do go ahead. I'm going to be chatting to Ben for a few more minutes, but uh, we'd love to get uh, your your questions for Ben, please. Um, so, Ben, we've seen some big technology companies thrive during the pandemic. Uh, obviously, consumers have become more and more reliant on them than ever before. You've touched on e-commerce. Um, but power really, um, I think it, it, their power is now unrivaled. Um, and there are increasing uh, concerns in areas like data privacy. We've seen them moved by Google in the, in the last week or so. Um, what's the sentiment around around big tech? People are using it, are dependent on it, but are they also uh, concerned about uh, the way that their data is being used uh, and issues like privacy? Yeah, I mean, as we uh, detailed in our Global Trends report, we have both data, data, anxiety, data anxiety and data apathy simultaneously. So actually apathy about our data is actually rising because people almost accept that with the levels of connectivity uh, and the levels of um, surveillance that basically is the economy of the internet, effectively you're surveilled in return for using it uh, in many cases. Um, people, have, people are basically accepting that. It's rising. So, And on data privacy, yes, there are concerns there. But interestingly, when we dug into the long-term trend data, what we found was where I could find comparative questions from the early 1990s about privacy, where we used to ask about it a lot less because it was less topical. Interestingly, people have always been worried about data privacy and, and concerns aren't actually, in the trends that I was able to dig out going back to the 1990s, that much more concerned. We almost accept it as part of the deal. That doesn't mean that there isn't real demand to regulate social media giants and tech giants. Eight out of 10 people globally want to see more regulation of them. Uh, and so we'll see what governments are able to come up with. But uh, people have this sort of cognitive polyphasia, to use a, you know, to use a posh phrase. We have, we have dissonance about using the technology and we go on using it anyway. Okay, Ben, we've got lots of questions coming in. Just one more from, from me, and then yeah. we'll move on to uh, questions from uh, from viewers. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'm sure you've heard it too. Businesses talking about their purpose uh, has now become a real kind of cliche. Um, what do you think this is going to look like in 2025? Will, you know, big corporations really be placing values and long-term thinking above fiduciary duty, as they're, they're saying they are at the moment? I think you know the interests of shareholders still remain pretty important to large businesses, and the perform and what happens on stock markets remains pretty important to uh, major corporations. But at the same time, being more positively, we've got about six out of ten businesses saying that they want to do more in diversity and inclusion. I think Black Lives Matter ricocheted through many businesses in America and in Britain, and I think there is a we know there is a genuine desire to do something, and certainly purpose. Businesses have often talked about it, and yes, there's a lot of greenwashing, but certainly consumers are much more likely now to say that they want to see chief execs stand up and be counted. They're much more likely to say they want to buy products from companies that share their values. So I don't think it's going away, but yes, there are obviously tensions between, you know, you say you're a very green company, but your business involves producing vast amounts of plastic bottles. Um, at some point, there's a, you know, there's, there are some natural tensions, but no, business has shifted. And I think a key driver in that shift is actually young, the, the, the generation gap in terms of expectations with younger employees themselves demanding more at their businesses. And I think we'll see that continue. So um, we've got lots of great questions coming okay. in. Which we, let's turn to those, Ben. Um, and, and maybe let's just take the, take the one on the top, actually, it, from, uh, from James, which is really interesting. Um, and he's asking about China how China is, is going to impact uh, you know, public sentiments uh, as, we, as we move forward and, and its, its power really becoming uh, globally established as the, the preeminent power on Earth. Yeah, I mean, people's 
Globally, attitudes to China, of course, have become more negative as it's become more authoritarian and um, as it's become more powerful. So that certainly happened. Uh, I mean, most people don't sit around thinking about China. You know, the public don't sit around thinking about China all day. But certainly, you can see, you know, governments this this sort of Cold War between China and the West. Which is very different from the previous Cold War, and because our economies and technology are so interlinked. But I think no, China is going a different way. Um, it's not going to pay much attention to anybody else. Will it come to a hot war? One, you know, one seriously hopes not. But we are, we are going to be in this period of jostling, uh, and that's that's going to create that's going to create more tension. Um, that's I think that's the only way you you can look at it. But whether you'll see one of the things that we've seen is a desire by consumers to buy more local products, and by that I mean from their country. But it works both ways because if you're in a global business listening to this, Chinese consumers' desire to buy Chinese goods rose dramatically last year during its trade war with Donald Trump, and that with that sort of chauvinism is likely to continue. So you could see the world breaking, you know, some of those some of that global trade breaking apart somewhat. You talked about localization. There's some questions here. I'm going to conflate them really yeah. uh, around around real estate and around local local localization, if you like. So people spending money in their local areas. Is that something you think is going to continue uh, up until 2025? I think it's difficult when you're in a pandemic and you're we're all shopping in our local neighborhoods and not commuting into city centers on a very regular basis, if at all, um, to make firm and fast predictions about 2025. But I think it's certainly there's been this sort of liminal moment of reappraisal. Did spending all those money on that rushing around and you know, eating out every night, which I used to do before the pandemic, did that make me happy? Or actually, am I enjoying buying stuff from my local butcher who I rediscovered or my local greengrocer who I rediscovered? And you know, the, the idea that Anne Hidalgo in Paris has promoted of the 15-minute city where you just have a you just have a sort of a slightly more relaxed pace of life. I think that does appeal to a lot of people. So we've certainly seen suburbs doing better than city centers. There's a lot of interest by governments to revive and city centers and get people back there. But um, it's just it's just not clear cut. I think I think there will be less commuting and less business travel, what, for, for slightly different reasons going forward. But you'd be very wary about betting the house on it. Just a couple more questions, Ben, because we're we're, we're yeah. pretty much out of time. Okay. Uh, one question from from Charlotte: um, What dates and trends do you see around attitudes around race, inclusivity, uh, equality? Uh, since you know maybe obviously the Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, um, last summer, how 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 do you think trends like that are going to develop in the future? Is this going to be something that that, that generally populations are more concerned about, and and, and organisations are more concerned about? Well, it it depends. It does vary dramatically from country to country. So, Britain and America, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement was a, was a real um, sort of water watershed moment. We saw in Britain, and we've got data going back to the 1970s, so we've had race riots in Britain in the 1980s, but concern about race relations in Britain in 2020 was the highest we had ever measured. Uh, and it was interesting because, of course, it, it, George Floyd wasn't murdered here, but it made people, I think this lockdown experience, looking at these screens, made people think George Floyd was in your room. You know, you saw the footage on your screen. It's very, very different. And so, no, it will be there. Um, and, and the challenge is that I think um, there are, there, you know, 54% of black people think that Britain is a racist country. Black British people think that. White British people, it's 30%. There's a big age difference. And remember, a third of kids at school today are ethnically diverse. So Britain is going to go on changing. And I think both that and the result, the, the aftermath of the murder of Sarah Everard are, are leading to pressure for change. And I think that I think that will continue because that's the direction of travel 
that we we had even before the pandemic. Final question, Ben, uh, from, from Rob that's just come in. Uh, and it's around, he's asking what the next big thing is. So something that's maybe off the radar, we're not really talking about right now, but in 2025 could be a, a, a you know a significant uh, matter or a significant uh, subject of interest uh, for people. I think I mean that's a really uh, that's a really interesting one. I mean I don't think there isn't an off the pat. I don't think I've got an off the pat answer. I mean it's fa- it's fascinating how big data becomes the thing that we all talk about and then it and then it disappears. Yeah. I mean but AI and computing power, you know that's the that that the sort of combination of that and the Internet of Things, which we're all talking about. So I think there's, if there's something I'm going to be talking about in 2025, I don't really know about it. I'm afraid, and I think that's one of the that's the trouble with predicting the future. We only know what we know now. You can go and look for the TED talk by the likes of Bill Gates when he predicted the pandemic about three or four years ago, but it didn't have quite as much impact. And I think that's just a very good way of reminding us of the need to keep looking across the horizon, um, and staying aware of, of, of these different potential disruptors. I mean, biotech, mitochondrial DNA would be perhaps my one, cell engineering. Yeah. The, you know, the person who's going to be, live to be a thousand has already been born somewhere in California. Yeah. And they're finally going to find a way to switch off aging. Maybe that's what you should look out for. Well, we look forward to seeing if uh, that is the case in 2025. Ben, thank you so much no for problem. sharing your time today and your insights. Uh, and we look forward to, uh, to hearing from you in the future. And thank you to all of you for joining us today on the session. Uh, stay well and we'll see you soon.